0: Have you ever wondered what it was like to be a woman in the late 1800s and 1900s, to grow up when women had no right to vote and were expected to just stay at home and serve their husbands and their children and not create their own vibrant, powerful lives? Today on the show, I'm interviewing a really cool woman who has written a book about her extraordinary grandmother, a leader in the movement to get the vote for women in the U.S., And a woman who built an amazing life despite many obstacles. I know you're going to love these stories of a badass from a century ago, a truly empowered woman who paved the way for many of the things that we benefit from and enjoy today. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jolicoer-Rude.
0: Welcome to the Born to be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolicoeur rude Today, I have something really special and a very special guest. Mila Johansson is a professional director, playwright, and writer. She's the author of 22 plays and musicals that circle the globe, along with two teaching manuals, 101 theater games, and 50 scenes to go. Mila also teaches social media, screenwriting, creative writing, herbology, and public speaking at a local adult education school. She has just Published a book about her famous suffragette grandmother, Jessie Haver Butler, just in time for the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote, which is in August of 2020. The book is called From Cowgirl to Congress, and I cannot recommend it enough. It is a wonderful read. So I'll have a link for that in the show notes. Mila lives on her organic citrus ranch in Northern California with her husband, four dogs, and a cat. And she says that every woman in the United States today owes their voting rights to her grandmother, Jessie, and to the others who fought so bravely for women's suffrage. So we are going to dive into that in just a moment. But for right now, I just want to say welcome to the show, Mila. Thank you, Cynthia. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited. And I kind of feel like I have two guests on the show today, you and Jessie.
2: Yes, Jessie and I were tied at the hip. We were very close. She helped raise me. And Writing this book, Let Me Be Close to Her Again, I've been in tears a lot because I I miss her terribly.
0: Well, if you could uh, sit next to your grandmother at any point in her life, what point would that be?
2: In her life? Well, I I knew her when she was an older woman, and that was charming because she told me all her stories over and over. I don't think I would change that because I'm the woman I am today from knowing her, and. She inspired me to go out there and help other women, and she helped so many women. You know, I mean, I guess if I had to pick one in history, it might be the day women won the right to vote in D.C. for the whole country, and she was there. That would be an awesome, awesome
0: point to just be right there with her. Mm -hmm. August 8th. Yes, yes, it's right around the corner, that anniversary is, so... Of all the animals that you have shared your life with, which one has been the most memorable or has brought the most
2: happiness to you? Well, my dogs. I love my dogs so much. And it seems like almost every dog I ever have becomes as special as the last one. You think they won't, but they do. And whenever my friends lose a dog, I say the only way to heal and they don't always want to hear it is to get another dog.
0: Yeah, that's always a a challenging time because we we have such attachment to our companions and it seems sort of unfaithful to bring another <laughs> another dog into the mix, but also, I mean, they leave such a huge hole in life when they go.
2: They they give you so much unconditional love and I think I think that's so important for so many people who, you know, maybe didn't get it when they were young or don't get it in their marriage or who knows, but a dog will always be there for you. Absolutely. What is your favorite self-care practice? Oh, I have a lot. I'm actually a certified herbalist. I've studied with the same teacher for 15 years. She's written 15 books and we take a lot of vitamins. We are organic farmers, so we eat organically as much as possible. Not every minute because I always told my daughter, when you eat out, don't worry about it because we need to have some of it inside of us in case we we can't find organic always. And so I think eating organically and as fresh as I can, fresh vegetables, fresh fruit, but also there's one more big thing as I walk every day really far, and that just sets my mind at ease about all the news and any troubles I might be having. It helps me handle it, my exercise program. Oh, yeah, for sure. Where where do you walk? Well, we live on a ranch, and I walk all over the ranch and up and down the hills, and Whenever I'm somewhere else, I walk, I found a park. And if I'm in a city, I'll just walk around the block three times. But I have to walk every day at least 20 minutes to keep my mind at ease. Mm-hmm. And that helps me almost the most of anything. My grandmother, she had a career till she was 94, and she swam and walked almost right up there to the end.
0: Isn't that amazing that that, that generation and you know, even the generation that came after that had such hardiness to them because I'm thinking like my mother lived till she was nearly 91 and she was a walker. She was born and raised in the North of England and you know grew up walking everywhere. And uh, when she was living the last 10 years of her life with me, she would walk every single day. It was
2: just part of her thing. That keeps us going. I, I think I hear a lot of people say they're depressed or they're, they can't hear the news. And I always say, go for a walk. Walk every day. I, that's my big message to everybody. It it actually settles the mind. It really does. Yeah, and we're made to move. We're not made to sit still. So <laughs> yeah, I've been sitting too much at my computer. I, I I must admit, but I try to walk two or three times a day to you know mitigate that.
0: Yeah, that's great. What advice would you give to young women in their twenties that you wish you had known when you were that age?
2: I would pay attention more. I don't think I did. I was very naive and young. And I would also study history more because history teaches us so many things about how lucky we are with what we have. You know, I teach Shakespeare kids in a huge theater program. And every once in a while, one of them will complain and I get in their face and I say, excuse me, do you have a bathroom? And they look at me like, yeah. And I go, well, how many in your house? Well, two or three. I say, well, then you should never complain again, because then I teach the slime and grime of Shakespeare's time to the kids to make them appreciate life.
0: Oh, that's awesome. I've never heard it said, the the slime and grime of Shakespeare's time.
2: That's a a book I'm putting out. Actually, I've been writing it for 20 years, but all my other books get in the way, so I I will get it out someday. And then I always say to the kids, now, you know, when they're throwing that big bucket of water out the top window, it's probably not water. They love that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, little perspective is great.
2: Yeah, I think perspective. I think I was so young and naive. I, I had I had no idea what was going on. I, I was wise for my age in some ways because I when I went to college, I always thought, well, why are these trees not fruit trees? So we have something to eat. We were all starving students. So I had a few big ideas.
0: <laughs> That's great. What's the most difficult decision you've ever had to make and what was your process for making it?
2: Hmm. That's a that's a hard one. I'm I'm not sure. I almost feel like all decisions lead you somewhere. And even if you've made bad decisions in the past, you can change that by making good decisions. And I think maybe one might have been leaving a certain job at a certain time and maybe not leaving in time. Like I'm I'm kind of a diehard. Once I start something, (laughs) I never let go and I keep going on it. And I think maybe for me, I should have dropped a few classes in college. Maybe I should have quit a few jobs before I did. I, I know that's kind of a backwards way of thinking, but that's how I am.
0: No, I actually think that's really insightful, and and it's something that comes up often in my conversations with some of the women that come to my courses because we talk a lot about relationships and relationships that turn toxic, and one of the hardest things for women to do is to. Actually, make the decision to end the relationship, and often they just hang on for a long, long time. And so, recognizing like when the right time is to to end something is difficult, especially if you don't see yourself as being a quote quitter.
2: That, that's a really good point, Cynthia. And and on the other hand, I, I forgot to mention though, I've taught kids for so long that I notice in in my own life with my friends that women will quit things if they have one little tiny failure. And I think that's another problem. I think like, okay, as far as relationships, yes, get out of that. But as far as jobs, and you think you failed one day, you know, men learn from sports. In basketball, you win one day, you lose another day. And I learned that late in life from running the ranch. And then I became a really good leader. And I think what I've noticed with a lot of my friends that are women they quit too early sometimes. So I think that's another side of it. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and often it's like right before things are going to turn around.
2: Thank you. And, and and how do we know? I think you're right. It's like, it's so hard. Oh, I do know one difficult thing I did. Okay, this is very intricate, but I had some toxic friends. And my daughter said to me one day, why do you let your friends treat you like that? Mom, I would never let my friends treat me that way. And I just won't have as many friends, she said. And so you know what? I dropped a couple friends. I think that was the hardest thing because I had gone on for 20, 30 years with them. And they always threw me under the bus every time. And so I actually dropped two friends. That that was tough. Mm, and and good for your daughter to
0: give that insight. <laughs>
2: yeah, it, was, it took her to wake me up that it was a possibility. I had never thought of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just to see it you know, for what it was. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And, yeah, as you get older, you know, you're gonna put up with less, I guess. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I would like to hear a little bit about your background, like where you grew up and, and what your your growing up years were like.
2: They were very tough. I have another book coming out pretty soon in a year or so. It takes a while to put a book together called The Cinderella Monologue, because I was a true Cinderella. I grew up in a very poor family where my mother was a single mother. My, thank God I had my grandmother. She really helped me and you know gave me cookies and told me stories and did things with me. But my mother was a single mother who was very sick. So she'd come home from teaching at five and go to bed. So I had to raise my brother, do all the housework, clean the pool. And I had to do like four hours of work a day, which made me the worker I am today, which turned out to be good thing because my brother she didn't believe boys should do all the work so he only did a half hour a week which was take out the trash and mow the lawn which is a little lawn at a track home and he ended up living in the streets the rest of his life and died in the street about five six years ago and so I feel that my childhood gave me a lot of strength but also so many women don't survive that so I I, I I grew up kind of in a in a rough gangland neighborhood near l a and but I was kind of naive and silly and tall, so nobody wanted to date me with luckily and I just kind of walked through unscathed i I had really good friends, but they all did everything, and I was exposed to everything so i'm writing this book, The Cinderella Monologues to show women that no matter where they come from, no matter what they do, they can become. Hugely successful in anything they want.
0: Mm. Oh, I'm I'm going to look forward to that too because I I think I'm hooked on your writing. So
2: (laughs) fly on the wall. This will be fly on the wall.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. What was your relationship with your grandmother
2: like? Well, she lived across the street from us when I was very young, and helped with my mother by having us over a lot, and I'd spend the night. Her beautiful house and she had a wall full of stars and I would spend the night and then and they were glow in the dark way before they had glow in the dark stars it must have been paint and it was all in galaxies and then I'd run into her room and have her tell me a story and even when I was a teenager I would flop into her big chair and ask her to tell me a favorite story again and I would even bring my prospective boyfriends over and just for an icebreaker with her because she's so interesting and everyone loved her. Then I followed her around while she did a lot of speeches in her later life. She spoke with Gloria Steinem and Marlo Thomas several times as the elder suffragette, and she took me along. And then later I worked for Jane Fonda, who was one of the speakers also. So she she just, she was always there for me. She was, we were close. When I went to college, we wrote each other one and two page letters. And I have them all in a binder because she typed hers and I found all of mine in her archives. And all her archives were sent to me decades ago. And I finally looked in them and found her memoir and a lot of rare pictures and started putting the book together two years ago. And why, why did you want to do a book? She always wanted it to be a book, her memoir. She had tried to get it published. And I thought, this is what I could do for her and be with her. And it took two months into it, Cynthia, to realize that the 100th anniversary was coming up. I worked on the book for two months before I realized that. So it was serendipitous. And I went, oh my gosh, I've got to get this book out for August 18th, 2020, the 100th anniversary. And so it it turned out to be a labor of love a year and a half because I cut it in half. It was very long. I cut it in half to be more readable. And Sparky and her stories, she would write just like she told them. So it was a great book already. And then I put in footnotes with all the famous people she met. She, she was with everybody all the time. And then, you know, Alice Paul and Carrie Chapman Cat and George Bernard Shaw and all the people that she associated with. And then I put 94 of her rare pictures from the archives in. So it's just a stunning book lie on the wall, if you've ever wanted to be a suffragette, you get to be there.
0: Yes. Well, can you sort of describe what her life was like, like starting at the beginning? Because I know that she had a really rough beginning and you
2: wouldn't have expected her to go where she went based on where she started. Yes. And I I love to tell it because I I really want everyone to know that it doesn't matter where you start. It's how you end, right? (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, she grew up on a Colorado cattle ranch in Pueblo, Colorado, and it was surrounded by tragedies and dangers, and it was very harsh life because her mother died when she was 10. All the mothers in the valley died before they raised their own children, so a second mother always had to come because there was no running water, no toilets, no amenities that we all take for granted now. and. Right before she died that same week, her mother had taken her into Pueblo to listen to Susan B. Anthony speak from the back of a wagon. And Jessie remembered looking up into Susan's face and saying, I want to grow up and help women just like she is. And that's what she ended up doing. A week later, her little sister drowned in the irrigation ditch and her mother died three days later. And then her father remarried and that mother and her son died later on her way, when she was on her way to college. But eventually, she met a wonderful teacher in high school who helped her get into Smith College in New England on the East Coast. She never looked back. She got on that train, and she went to Smith College for four years. And after Smith College, her first job was she helped one professor, Professor Cunliffe, put together the Pulitzer School of Journalism at Columbia, just the two of them. Which is amazing. And then from then on, she was always on the front lines of so many important events. Her next job, she helped create the first minimum wage for women from four dollars a week, if you can imagine, to eight dollars a week. They doubled it. And they were getting the children out of the factories at the same time. So that was her, her first two jobs. And then they, they said where they sent her down Washington D.C. to set the minimum wage for the entire country from four dollars a week to eight dollars a week, and created her to be the first woman lobbyist at the Capitol in D.C. Good heavens! Well, I, I want to ask a couple questions along
0: the way because that is quite a quite. I, a, I know, sorry. <laughs> of, I mean, golly, it's so much, so much activity in such a short period of time. Like, what year was she born? Actually.
2: She was born in 1886, the year after her contemporary Alice Paul was born. Okay. They were the same age.
0: Yeah. Okay. And so then her grandmother died when she was around 10. and Her mother.
2: Her mother. Si-
0: her mother. mother. And then her sister as well. Holy cow.
2: I know. It was, a, you know, it, it was very unsafe out there on the prairie. There was a lot of danger and depression, I think.
0: And I guess like in our first conversation where we were talking about you being on the show, you mentioned that she had some sort of Me Too-like experiences. And, and I know in the uh, beginning of the book, you mentioned that she had some other tragic experiences that you hadn't included. Do you want to talk a little bit about those?
2: Oh, <laughs> I do, but I don't want the family that's still there to hear those things. Okay. There was some Me Too moments. As you can imagine. And she would tell me, you know, back there on the prairie, on those farms, there was no one to watch what was going on. And so anything could happen. And, you know, your father was the king of the castle. And then there was some actual, okay, this is hard to say, but some actual murder in the family. And that was, um, you know, really took its toll on her. But she said it was a rough time back then. She understood it. She went to Jungian psychology in England when it first came out and they really helped her get through all of this and understand that, you know, it didn't just happen to her. It happened to many other people like those wonderful shows, Oprah and all the talk shows we've ever watched show us that we're not the only ones that these things have happened to. Right.
0: And then, I mean, what an extraordinary thing to have so many, I mean, they're beyond tragedies in a way, you know, just things that really impact your whole being, you know, your mind, your, your body, your spirit, and then have this sort of escape route presented of, of going away to college.
2: And Smith is a women's college, right? Yeah, it's all women. And her father tried to stop her from going. He wanted her to stay home and Feed the ranch hands and do all the housework. And her teacher came up to him and said, You know, she's been through too many tragedies. If she stays here with you, she will be dead in a year and you cannot afford to have another tragedy on your hands. Oh my. (laughs) So he coughed up the money and sent her off on the train. You know, an interesting thing that happened was when she got to Chicago, she was supposed to meet another train to go to New England. And one whole entire train car was designated just for the smith girls and she goes whoa here i am on my way to smith college in my own train car with all these girls and all the girls showed up with all these beautiful outfits all very wealthy with 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 trunks piled high and and mothers who cared and mothers who were there for them and she looked at them and said what would it have been like to have a mother see me off on this and have beautiful clothes in my trunk and then she said but you know I don't feel so unlucky because I've escaped the cattle ranch and I'm on my way to school
0: yeah well she she really did go from one extreme to the other
2: yes it was it was (laughs) it was a miracle because she could have got stuck there in Pueblo Colorado
0: yeah yeah and so then she she was able then to sort of become engaged in the kind of work that she had gotten an inkling about when she first saw Susan B. Anthony while she was at college.
2: Good point, because in college, when she was at Smith College, she would go to ride horses because, you know, she'd ridden horses all her life. And she would go to rent the horses. And on the way to the horse barn was a stocking factory. And I have the McCullum McCollum stock, Stocking Factory. I have a picture of it in the book. And she felt a little guilty suddenly because here's all these women and children walking to work at 7 a.m. in the morning with ragged clothes on, and they wouldn't come out till after dark. And that's when she first noticed those kinds of things going on. And so later on, when she helped Boston set the minimum wage for women, they sent her over to that same factory by accident to write down the numbers of what people were making and how many people were working there and how many hours. And she looked out the window at the girls walking by from Smith College, and it felt so unreal that she wasn't there anymore, but that these people were still working so hard in the factory. So she became a social worker that day.
0: Oh, wow. She she was not somebody to see something going on that needed to be addressed, especially where concerned women, and then just not take action. She sounds like a very action-oriented woman. I think a lot of
2: that came from her own childhood and rough upbringing to understanding it. I think the other girls, um, many of the other girls, at never gave a second look or a second thought because they came from such wealthy families. Yeah, they probably looked and didn't see. Yes. Did you see the movie uh, Mona Lisa Smile with Julia Roberts? No, I haven't. Well, it's a very good movie about how she goes to teach at a school. I'm not sure what the year is. I think it's like early 1900s or maybe a little later. And and she tries to teach them philosophy and art and all these other subjects. But all they keep saying is, well, why do we have to learn this? We're going to, after college, I'm going to get married and, and just make dinners for my husband and have babies. And they were all kind of brainwashed that way. And then by the end, she had changed a few of them to want to go on and become something else.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Well,
0: I'm curious how Jesse went from that college environment and being a social worker to ending up in D.C. doing the work. Well,
2: after she set the minimum wage and helped set the minimum wage in Boston, anything that happened in Boston, then the rest of the country would follow. Boston was usually the leader in all those kind of new laws and, and things. And so they sent her down to Washington DC to become their lobbyist, which made her the first official lobbyist because she was hired by a company, the minimum wage board. And when she got there, she got thrust right into the suffrage movement. She met Alice Paul and Alice Paul had a house right across the street from the white house. And she would serve lunch and dinner cafeteria style to all the women who worked for her. And so Jesse was invited and they were trying to get her to be part of their group, but she didn't like the militaristic way they did things as much because she was a parliamentarian. And she and Alice Paul were the same age. And the great thing about Alice Paul is she, she had a benefactor who helped her you know, with, pay for the house and everything. But Alice Paul actually was a Quaker who came from a very wealthy family and had just attended the London School of Economics. And that's where she met Emmeline Pankhurst and learned the militant way of suffrage. Oh, Emmeline was very good at that. Yes. <laughs>
0: yes. Of so you may be familiar with Alice Paul or Emmeline Pankhurst or the idea of the, the militant versus the parliamentarian. Can you kind of describe exactly what those differences were and
2: what the dynamics were in the movement? yes yes and and so jesse hung out with alice paul and all her women and and you know was around them when they all went to jail and got fed with tubes through their noses so they wouldn't become martyrs and the last straw was when alice paul and her women burned the president's speeches on the white house lawn and they were picketing they picketed for days through you know cold and hot and and they they she believed that it had to be done that way to get the attention. At the same time, Jesse met Carrie Chapman Cat, who was a parliamentarian, and Carrie Chapman Cat invited her to go as a second speaker on a huge lecture across the West to get each state to ratify for the nineteenth amendment, which used to be called the Susan B. Anthony Amendment. But anyway, so she she liked Carrie Chapman Cat. Carrie Chapman Cat was 30 years older than both of those young women. She had worked as the young woman with Susan B. Anthony for 30 years already. So she had already been on the front lines. And when Susan B. Anthony retired, she handed the baton specifically to Carrie Chapman Catt. So Jesse always said, without both of those ways, we may not have gotten the vote as soon as we did. In England, they didn't get the vote. Until 1928, eight years later than the U.S. And the most surprising thing of all, Cynthia, <laughs> is in Switzerland, they didn't get the right to vote until 1971. What? Are you shocked? When I heard that on NPR, I had to pull my car over. I was so shocked. I had no idea. Meaning I didn't either. Well, I, I learned this like 10 years ago, but still, it was shocking. <laughs> I know. Can you believe that? Oh, my gosh. I mean...
0: That's 50 years late.
2: Yes. You know, you wouldn't think that Switzerland was macho, but I've read some other stories and they were.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, so so when the work of the militants and the parliamentarians finally started to bear some fruit, like what, what was the process like when the right to vote was actually granted and, and what was your grandmother up to in that? period of time?
2: Well, she she was, I should tell you a couple stories from her that are really, really good. And uh, so she was a lobbyist. Her first thing was to get the minimum wage bill through. So she had to go and greet a very gruff senator from Kentucky, a Southern man who believed that the woman's place was in the house, having children and keeping the house for the man. And so she'd Knew she had to go and greet him, so she dressed up, went into his office in the building, and the secretary wasn't there, so she sailed right into his office. It's, he looked up and he looked very gruff and he said, What are you doing here? She said, Well, Senator, I've come from the Minimum Wage Commission and I am sent to ask you to help us set the minimum wage for women around the entire country. And he said, Why aren't you home having babies? And she thought, because she knew that the whole bill hinged on what she said next. She said, well, Senator, it's customary to have a husband before having babies, and all the good men seem to be taken. He laughed. (laughs) And and he said, well, I'm just going to have to help you then. And so she explained the bill to him, and then he looked at her gruffly one more time, and he said, what do you do for recreation? And she told him about her friends and she, how every weekend they would go to their hideaway at the Potomac and they would canoe up and down the Potomac as a big group. They were all worked in in politics in D.C. And that's where she met her husband, her future husband. And he got so excited. He started telling her about his exploits as a boy in Kentucky, fishing, swimming, canoeing. He went on for half an hour. And then he said to her, well, what's the date you want to do this? And they set a date on his calendar. He went into Congress, spoke about it, got it through because anything he believed in and wanted happened because he was so powerful. And then he came to her and said, anything else you're ever working on, come to me first and I'll help you. Wow. Isn't that a great story?
0: That's amazing. So did she go to him when it came down to uh, getting the right to vote?
2: You know, I, I I haven't actually heard that part, but but she did, and she did one more big thing. This is an amazing story. She took down the meat packers single handedly. The meat packers were like Chicago gangsters, and they were holding the the price of cattle over the farmers and the cattle ranchers. And she, I this is amazing, Cynthia. But in that time period, it was like. I think it was like 1917, 18, you could go into Congress building and you could see a meeting happening and you could walk in and sit and listen. And guess what? You could even get up and speak if you wanted to, if it wasn't a closed session. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Anyway, so she was going down the hall one day and she saw this big meeting going on. So she went in to see what was going on because she was a very curious person. And it turns out it was about the meat packers and they were trying to determine if they were being crooked with the cattle ranchers. And she knew that story because her father, as a cattle rancher, had sent all of his cattle on a train to Oklahoma to the slaughterhouses. And when they got there, they had lowered the price so much that he lost his shirt. He, and he couldn't send the cattle back on the train. It would have been too much money. So the next year, all the cattle, the entire herd, wandered into quicksand and sink god you know so he became a (laughs) realtor but anyway so she knew what they were doing and they were doing it over and over again and so she started wrote an article and she knew the papers wouldn't print it because they were doing full page ads for the meat packers every day and it was paying their way so she went to her friend who worked at the christian science monitor which was a big paper back then. And they didn't have the ad, so her friend ran her article. And so every day, for many days, she went into the meeting and wrote an article in her perfect Pulitzer School of Journalism format that she had learned at Columbia and took it down to this woman who put it in under her name every day in the Christian Science Monitor. Pretty soon all, now once it was in one paper, the other papers could take it on. So they all took it on. It became very exposed and President Wilson finally had to pay attention and he made a law against it and stopped them cold. And if they would have known it was Jessie, I think her life would have been in danger.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. But nothing was ever published under her name though. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Wow. That's really cool. I think uh, one of the other stories in the book that's really interesting is how the right to vote kind of came down to one senator. Yes, Harry Byrne. Yeah, can you tell that story?
2: Yes, this I, I love this story. She told me over and over again, and there's parts of it that aren't printed that nobody else knows, but it turned out that there were 35 states ratified. They needed one more to make 36 to put the 19th Amendment through. And it, it, it came down to Nashville, and it was a southern state, and the governor there finally said, "Okay, we'll do a vote." He knew it would lose. He thought it would lose. So everybody came down. Everything hinged on it. The meat packers, the liquor coalition, the the steel industry, and Carrie Chapman Cat and her women came down. Jessie stayed in D.C. because she was still lobbying, just in case it didn't go through. And and they were there for days. And Carrie Chapman Cat and her women were. Were taunted, they were spit upon, their mail was open, they didn't want them there. A lot of the women even didn't want them there. A lot of the women fought against the vote all over the country. They didn't know it was such a good thing for themselves, right? So it came down to one young man, Harry Byrne. He was very, very young, I think in his early 20s. And he suddenly voted for ratification. And nobody could believe it. All the men came up to him and thumped him on the back and said, no. You were going to vote against it. And he said, I couldn't. I got a letter from my mother. (laughs) And I have the letter right here in the book. I'll read it to you. Because she said, Dear son, hurrah and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I noticed some of the speeches against. They were bitter. I have been watching to see how you stood, but have not noticed anything yet. Don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat put the rat in ratification, your mother. And also, I know, can you believe this? And so, so then all the newspaper men got very excited and they wanted to interview this woman, but most people didn't have cars back then. So they rented a bunch of cars and they headed for the hills where she lived on a small farm. And they found her coming out of the milking barn with two pails of milk. And she sat them down at the kitchen table and gave them some baked goods she had baked that morning and some milk. And they said, well, why did you write that letter to your son? She said, well, the winters are long up here in the hills and we're always reading Shakespeare and he's always funning with words. So I thought maybe I could fun with some words. And that's how 17 million women in the USA got the right to vote.
0: Holy cow.
2: I know it's a good story, huh? It's great.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, when you when you think about politics and you think about this particular period of time where women were struggling so hard to exercise some control over what was happening to them and you know, to be able to start to build lives that were self-determined rather than, you know, like what you were talking about at the beginning where it was just kind of assumed what the path was going to be. And it all hinged on men voting in support of things that would really impact women's lives. You know, so to hear, to hear the real stories of what was going on behind the scenes to actually influence men to, to make the votes and to create the changes uh, is really fascinating. And, I mean, how cool to grow up hearing these stories firsthand from somebody who who was
2: there. It, oh, there's one more part of that story. Should I tell it? It's a, kind of a, uh, here's what happened. Carrie Chapman-Catton and Jesse always said, we have to have the men on our side or we'll never lose. And Alice Paul said, I don't want any men who don't believe in it. So they were. That's was the divide. Okay, so that day, Jesse was in D.C. and she telegraphed when she heard that the vote had gone through. She telegraphed Carrie Chapman Cat and said, we should have a celebration. I can get the Poli Theater for nothing. And and you come up here and, and make speeches and we'll have a big celebration. So she, Carrie Chapman Cat consented. Jesse put together the Poli Theater, which was donated. And all these flowers were donated. And everyone's pretty excited. A lot of men, a lot of senators, everybody came. And Carrie Chapman Cat Gave one of the best speeches of her life, but the morning before that, it was the next day after the vote. They they came back into D.C. and the morning after that, Jesse went into Carrie Chapman Cat's office and said, "You know, Carrie, it'd be a very big gesture if you would ask Alice or one of her women to come speak beside you." And Carrie said, "She's a very kind woman and very soft-spoken, and but very great speaker." And she said, "I'm sorry, Jesse. There's too much." under the bridge, I I can't do it. And so Alice wasn't invited. And it kind of makes me sad. I kind of tear up when I think about it. They had both worked so hard. But Carrie made one of her greatest speeches of the night and it brought the house down and it was a very big celebration. Well, Alice Paul and her women did a great thing. They stayed up to all hours of the night and they created the writing and the architecture of the, equal rights amendment which we're still working on today and so instead of being too disappointed they created something that night which i found very interesting
0: well that is really neat because that's like okay so we we managed to finally get this big thing what's next you know not okay
2: now we're done Exactly. In fact, I found it, it's on the internet a very interesting interview with Alice Paul when she was in her seventies, I think seventies or eighties, and she really describes everything that happened blow by blow and how, how what really happened, not like what was written up sometimes. So it's a it's it's a fascinating interview with her. Well, I will see if I can find that. I'll try to find it and send it to you. Uh, that would
0: be that would be awesome because. You know, I, I was born in 62, and I remember in my teens-ish was when the Equal Rights Amendment was being talked about and people were trying to pass it, and then it failed. But I didn't really know, you know, I was, I was young and ignorant. I didn't know the context, and I certainly didn't know the origin story. So that's really important, I think, for us to know where these things actually began.
2: I don't think anyone knows that story except from Jesse, the last part. Yeah.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that's one reason why it is so amazing that, you know, you not only grew up listening to these stories, but that she wrote down a lot uh, in terms of her memoir. But then didn't you also do some interviews of her?
2: like when you were in college oh yes i i somehow had the presence of mind to go to her house for 2 weeks and i recorded her every day for 2 hours and i said tell that story again and that story and i actually on my youtube i have a couple of them of her speaking on there you know it's very old tapes and it it's a little hard to understand but it's her voice speaking she was a very fine speaker and so I, I had the presence of mind to do that. And around the same time, Sherna Berger Gluck, who actually wrote the foreword to my book, thank goodness, came and interviewed her for a college and they put out the book from Parlor to Prison. And the book From Parlor to Prison is been used for women's studies for the last forty, forty years. Well, since the seventies. forty. 50 years, and it's still out there. And it's, it's a beautiful book. It interviews five women who were on the front lines of the suffrage movement. And Jessie was one of those five women telling a lot of these same stories and a few other stories that aren't in this book.
0: Well, I'm definitely going to see if I can find that because back when I was in college, I actually, after I completed my undergraduate degree, thought that I was going to go on and do a graduate degree in women's studies. And So I did read a lot of, of the classic books that have been associated with a women's studies curriculum, and I've never heard of that one.
2: It's on Amazon, and I keep buying them to hand to people to read. I say, here, read this book and pass it on.
0: Well, I, I want you to know, speaking of buying things on Amazon, I bought one yesterday, which hasn't arrived yet, but it's Jessie's book on women and speaking. So can you, can you share a little bit about how that came about? Oh, which one was that? I don't remember the title of it off the top of my head, but it was the book that she published uh, on on public speaking. Oh,
2: yes, yes, yes. Uh, Well, you know, first of all, there's a few other small interesting things is that she and her future husband met and they were at a boarding house and they decided, why don't we make a co-ed housing? It was the first co-ed housing in DC or anywhere, I think. And they rented a huge home, invited their politician canoeing friends and they hired a maid and a cook and they all lived there together. And there's articles written about it, about this co-housing that was so unique. And then other people started co-housing because during World War II, there was a shortage on housing. So this is how they solved it. They lived in a really nice home and they had people who helped them. And so right after the vote, Hugh had gotten a job as the trade commissioner in England and he suddenly said to her, they thought they were platonic friends. He said, I don't know if I can live without you. You're going to come with me? She, go, she goes, well, what's that? A proposal? You know, that's kind of how they talk. They weren't. And so they got married, and they took the Christmas ship Aquitania to England. And what a shock. They froze. They had to go by long johns. They didn't it would be so cold, and they had no heating in, in England And the the from the coal the air was so thick and yellow that you'd be walking down the street and you would bump into people. And so they, they lived there for eight years, and he did a huge thousand-page book study on the pros and cons of coal as if we were doing maybe solar today. And they were presented to the Queen of England. They met George Bernard Shaw. And George Bernard Shaw loved Jesse because she had a speech prepared about prohibition, and he was a teetotaler and a vegetarian. And the best friend of Lady Astor, who was both of those two. And so he invited Jesse to speak with him all over London on Prohibition. And I have the article in the book. I have the notice from the Fabian Summer School about her speaking at Essex Hall. And, And then she also met one of her best friends for life, Lady Astor. And I didn't realize Lady Astor was a woman from Virginia who ended up being the first woman to sit in parliament <laughs> in England and sat there for twenty-eight years. I didn't
0: know she was an American.
2: Yeah, I didn't know that either. She was in the, until I started writing this book. She was an American. And she she became one of the richest people in the world. She grew up kind of like Jesse in a in a norm, you know a, a humble family. And she became sitting in Parliament by accident. Her husband was sitting in Parliament. And he was from the house, his father had died. And so he had to go to the house of Lords. He goes, look, I'm going to get out of the house of Lords and I'll be back. Just sit here till I, till I fix this. Well, he couldn't, he had to stay in the house of Lords the rest of his life. So she sat in parliament for 28 years. And what started this book was I was going through the archives and I found 19 letters from Lady Astor to Jessie and letters from Jessie to her because Jesse would type her letters. So that would be the next book, Dear Lady Esther, for the for maybe 1928, which will be the hundredth anniversary of England getting the vote. I'm in touch with someone from Oxford about that right now. But anyway, so they had this great time in England. She was presented to the Queen Mary, and oh, and the great thing about her being presented to Queen Mary was she didn't have a lot of money. Well, they they had enough, you know. They had houses with cooks and maids. That's how everybody lived back then in England. And so she found a dress for 40 pounds. Everyone else spent 2000 on their dresses. Her dress that night, out of thousands of people being presented to the Queen, was the only one written up in the London Times and the New York Times.
0: That's amazing because I know being presented and having a court dress is like a huge deal. And yet uh, she did it her way.
2: I I know. And and her dress was so beautiful that that's why they wrote it up. She just did Sound a, be- a beautiful one. So after England, she came back to America and she didn't know what to do. So she thought, well, I could start lecturing about being presented to court. So she started lecturing to women and teaching them to speak. And then a, a professor came to her and said, you know, there's no, woman, there's no woman's book on speech. So you should write it. She goes, well, I've never written a book before. And so she finally did. She spent a whole summer, not very long, three months, and wrote this beautiful book, Time to Speak Up. And it became the Women's Speech Handbook. She taught thousands of women. She toured the whole country, speaking for the Federation of Women and all these groups. And then Eleanor Roosevelt offered, or they asked her, to open Jessie's speech classes. So Jesse and Eleanor Roosevelt shared the podium several times together. That's
0: just amazing. I mean, so many things that she did are accomplishments that like, we don't even think about now. We just take for granted that this is this is normal.
2: Exactly, exactly.
0: And you know, we often talk about how we sort of stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. And like, she literally is one of the women without whom we would not be where we are today.
2: Exactly. You know, and and she didn't always get the credit that maybe Carrie Chapman Cat and Alice Paul got because she was the lobbyist. And Carrie Chapman Cat actually created the League of Women Voters in 1920, right before we got the vote. And she had Jessie be the lobbyist for that. She hired her, and then in the book, I have three letters Carrie Chapman Cat to Jessie, which I think are extraordinary.
0: Well, see, and that's something else that I didn't know. I mean, I I knew that there was a League of Women Voters and that they provide information, you know, about different candidates and issues and help to make informed choices about voting and things like that. I had no idea where that came from or why.
2: Me neither. I didn't know. This book really opened my eyes. You know, my grandmother told me certain stories, but a lot of them I hadn't heard when I was young. And I learned a lot from writing this book. Then I did research. I researched every single person she mentioned. I mean, she met, you know, the man who wrote Peter Pan. She met Emmeline Pankhurst. She met all these famous people that you and i have heard of all our life and so i researched each person and put a footnote about them in the book and i learned a lot i learned so much from writing it i love history i love history
0: is there any particular story that's your favorite
2: well there's a there's a wonderful story about her with the queen would you like to hear it it's very funny Absolutely, yeah. Okay, well, first of all, they were presented to the Court of St. James, and that was a great night. You know, they, they had to learn to walk and curtsy. They had to go to lessons. <laughs> and so anyone who had been presented the Court of St. James was invited to the Queen's Garden Party. And it turns out this was the last year of the presentations and the Garden Party, 1928. And Jessie had been invited every year. She was in England, and she, oh, no, that's fluff. I don't want to go. I don't need to go to that. Till a friend talked her into it and said, you will never forget it. You should go. So her friend helped her find the dress and the flowers and the tiara and everything. So, and there's a picture of the dress in the book. And so she went to the garden party, and she watched the queen walk around. And at the garden party, you could actually talk to the queen one of the only times ever. And she said to Hugh, I want to talk to the Queen. Everyone's talking to the Queen. And Hugh got very embarrassed because Jessie could be kind of out there and said, no, no, don't go talk to the Queen. She goes, well, why not? Everyone's doing it. Hugh, just go in the back and no one will know you belong to me. There were 9,000 people at this garden party, everyone who had been presented all all spring and summer. And so he went to the back and she went up to the Lord Chamberlain and said, uh, would it be possible if I spoke with the queen? And he said, yes, I think so. Let me introduce you. So when the queen passed, he introduced Jessie. And the queen said, oh, so you're from America. And Jesse said, yes. And women in America are terribly interested in you. Me? Well, why would they be interested in me? And she said, well, they really want to know about what kind of housekeeper you are. And the queen threw her head back and laughed so loudly that almost the whole garden party turned to look at them. (laughs) And the queen said, oh, well, and moved on. That was all it was. But the next day or two, an article was put into the London Times titled, The Queen as Housekeeper. And so Jessie had influenced her, and Hugh said, what prompted you to ask the queen about housekeeping or, or ask her about housekeeping? And Jessie said, Well, I've been reading all these articles. She's German and she loves to organize every castle. And she's organizing Windsor right now before they move to Balmora. I think Balmora. And she loves to organize it herself, even though everyone else does the work. And so that's why she said that to the queen and got her attention. That's really cool. (laughs) I know it's a funny story. Oh, and then they went and had strawberries and Devonshire cream and and Hugh enjoyed they were both teetotalers basically but he enjoyed the King's champagne that day well it was a special occasion (laughs)
0: yes (laughs) that's that's really neat you know I mean I think if you were to ask a hundred women you know if you had the opportunity to ask the queen of England a question would not be what any of them would come up with I don't think
2: exactly I think that got her attention you know (laughs)
0: very unexpected. <laughs> That's cool. Well, I I think it's really clear that Jessie was an extraordinary woman who had all kinds of amazing experiences during her life and must have been quite a storyteller if she if she told all these stories to you and and wrote some of them down and I'm curious what have been the ways that having her in your life and and then even learning more about her during this book writing process How has that really influenced your path through life?
2: Watching her work and work with people. And she would tell me this, this thing. I don't know if this happens to you, but now it happens to me. Is she said, I'll be in bed and I'll be so comfortable and warm and cozy. And then suddenly I'm up because I thought of something I needed to do. (laughs) Do, Do you ever do that? All the time. <laughs> me too. All of a sudden I'm up and I go, oh, that's Jessie, you know, and, and so I'm like her that way. I wasn't going to be like her. When she passed away, the NOW Women, National Organization of Women, a lot of them came to me and said, oh, are you going to march in her place? Because I have a picture in the book of her marching in her 80s with her husband, where they got the picket and, you know, it's very cute. And I said, no, I was kind of flippant. I, I think I was just ignorant. I said, no, my grandmother told me I'm already emancipated from the work she did. I'm going to go live my life. Well, as the years went by and I matured and I had a child and I became very aware of GMO and the poisoning of America through pesticide and insecticide. So I have become an outspoken speaker against that. I have become Jesse completely, by the way. (laughs) yes, but dealing with... Current issues, you know she was, she was an activist a hundred years ago. She was, and I think it, she would take on the GMO poison thing now herself. I, I say that because she spoke out for mothers and childcare. She, she spoke out for child care a lot. She felt mothers should be in the workplace if they want to be, and there should be child care at every place. So she worked on that. She worked on breastfeeding, because she, she learned to breastfeed in England. And back here, you know, people were starting to use the bottle, and she didn't agree with that. She she really believed in the breastfeeding, and she spoke out for that. She spoke out for a lot of things. She had her career till she was 94. She, Her last speech she made with Gloria Stein and Marlo Thomas in Hollywood at age 94. And at 93, she'd let her secretary go. And then she went a little senile, barely, and died at age 98. So for me... When I was young, I used to say, because of knowing her, I'm going to make a great old lady because I'm already eccentric. (laughs) And she, because of her, I knew I could be older and, and be productive. And Oprah says we have to reinvent ourselves till the end. So I'm always reinventing myself and trying new things. And I have so many more books to put out and I'm just so inspired by Jessie in all of those things. Like she, she, she is why I am the woman I am today. Wow! And and
0: she's why many of us have the opportunities that we do today as well.
2: To vote, yeah. And you think about it. In the olden, you know, before that, women weren't allowed to have their own money. They couldn't vote. It, it was it was a very rough life, and we take a lot of this for granted. People are complaining, but we have toilets we have freedoms we can vote and i try to remind people of that all the time yes yes
0: well you know she she blazed quite a trail for <laughs> many decades and i think that it took a lot of courage for her to do the things that she did and to speak up you know i mean the fact that she wrote a book about speaking that is you know that that uses that language too is is awesome because It takes a lot of courage to step outside of the confines of what is, quote, normal and expected and really follow your dream and seize opportunities. And I think she was a very empowered woman. She did the things she wanted to do and and did it in the face of opposition (laughs) frequently. So I'm really curious, knowing what she was like and the role model that she was and and seeing how how she's influenced you as you've grown through several decades. How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage?
2: I think a lot of it comes down to two quotes that I always quote. Glinda the Good in Oz (laughs) said, you've always had the power. You have it. Assume it. Today. There's nothing to stop you except yourself. And I think back then there there were things to stop people, but you know, women still found ways to do things. And another quote that I love, it's from a Buddhist saying, it says, There is a goose in the bottle. How to get the goose out of the bottle without hurting the goose or breaking the bottle? Answer. There. It's out. I don't know why, but I've always loved that. It helped me. I read it when I was eighteen, and it it helped me realize I didn't have a lot of blocks, and I can do anything. And it it just some people, you know, it's. It, I think we have to be organized. We have to start. People write a lot of articles about me, and usually they title it "Just Do It" or "Just Start." I always say, "Don't wait for the right moment. If you're going to write a book, put your pen to page, your fingers on the keyboard, and start today, even if you do two minutes." Don't don't wait for two hour slot. Like the same thing with the gym. You can't go for two hours, go for 20 minutes. hmm
0: Well, I think those are great lenses to to view power and courage through. And and I'm totally with you on the the concept of getting started, you know, just taking one step and and getting started. But I I also love that like the first place you went was Glenda the good witch, because that concept of like, it's in you, it's been in you all the time. You just didn't know how to tap into
2: It's
0: exactly the whole point of how I teach self-defense for women. It's, It's not something out there that you need to go get. It's something that's actually in you. And all you need to do is learn how to tap into that because you have what you need. You just don't know.
2: I'm tap- glad you teach that. I think that's so important right now.
0: Well, thank you. Me too. And and it's it's like with your path and with Jesse's path. Like when you are called to do something and you're drawn into something, you just really have to do it. You can't resist it and say, "Oh, I don't know, I think that's too scary," or "Why would I do that?" You just do it because you can't not do it.
2: Exactly. Just do everything. I I some people think I do too much, but you know what? I I feel like. I'm going to get the most out of this life. I'm going to do as much as I can and I'll add it on if I need to. I really want to help women. I I teach a lot of things right now. I'm teaching this wonderful class lately, how to write your short book in a day because if you have your short book, you could use it for an outline for your bigger book or you can use it as a calling card to give to people. It makes you the expert. I've been teaching creative writing and screenplay writing and everything forever and I'm really excited about this short book because I didn't realize I could write a short book. I thought my book has to be long, 300 pages at least, you know, and now we can write the short book on Amazon. The shortest book you can write is 36 pages and they'll print it and you don't have to pay a thing. You just, it's wonderful. So let's say you're teaching self-defense. You could write the short book on that and get everyone excited and give it away as a freebie. I mean, there's, there's so many things we can do, and that's my, my, one of my new bents right now is to help people write their short book and give them permission to do it.
0: Yeah, that's great. I, I love that you do that, and I do have several books in me that are wanting to come out, and I'll be honest, I do tend to think I can't do that today because I don't have enough time, and it never occurred to me that I could sit down and do two minutes here and two minutes there and just you know, ping away at it until it was done. So There's a
2: concept out right now, 20 minutes a day. That's all we ask. (laughs) Uh Uh Uh-huh.
0: Well, that's great. And I love that you're doing that because it really kind of is an extension of what Jessie did. I mean, Jessie was really all about women being able to take up space on the planet and be full members of society and to engage in the activities that they wanted to engage in, you know, for herself and for other women. And that
2: sounds like that's exactly what you're up to also. Yes, and and that's why she taught all those women to speak. A lot of them were senators' wives, some were senators, some were just women who she knew needed to speak in their communities. So she was giving them permission to speak, which they had not heard of before much, you know. And I think that was very, very important. She trained me to speak, and I'm so thankful. And I followed her around while she spoke all kinds of situations.
0: Yeah. Well, women's voices are important, and it's an ongoing process, I think, to, to help women gain the courage to use their voices and to express what they want to express. And um, also, we have opportunities on new platforms where our voices can be heard, like this podcast. So, you know, it is kind of a new frontier in
2: a way, but
0: the mission is very connected.
2: It's really been a great thing during COVID, you know, stay at home because I was wanting to speak at all these clubs about the book, but instead I'm doing podcasts. It's a wonderful opportunity and I appreciate what you're offering. And I think that podcasting is really a wave of our current future right now. It really is. It's it's the best place to be. And
0: Before we wrap it up, I want to have you share how people can follow up with you and get in touch with you. And also, I don't think we ever mentioned the title of this book. So we should do that because I want everybody to go out and get a copy. I got mine a month ago probably. And I'm so glad that I saw that you were publishing this and I want everybody to go and get a copy. So can you share like how to, how to connect with you and what the book is actually called?
2: Sure. It's called From Cowgirl to Congress. And it's on Amazon as an ebook and a paperback. And it will be an audible book any minute now. I found a wonderful reader and um, the audible book will be fun. In fact, every time I hear this woman reading it, even though I've heard the stories hundreds of times, and went through the book and put it together, I have to listen to her because it's fun to hear it read. And then you can also order it through any local bookstore, I'm pretty sure. And it's just a wonderful, fast, entertaining read. You get to be a fly on the wall because she was there and you get to experience it firsthand. From Cowgirl to Congress is a very... Exciting book to read. Everyone I know who's read it says, Oh my gosh, it was so fast. I didn't realize. And there's a lot of letters, pictures to go with it. My daughter, okay, it she goes, Oh, I like this book. It has lots of pictures. And I'm like, Great. I got her stamp of approval.
0: Well, Jessie's real personality and character just come through super clearly. So it's it is like being in the room with her and like being Best friends, and and getting to hear these stories direct from her, and the the title is from cowgirl to Congress, but you and Jesse share the authorship of it.
2: I I put Jesse Haver Butler with Mila Johansson because it put us together as because I've been so close to her doing this. So I I really she wrote most of it, but I edited the heck out of it, <laughs> and it, it has her voice. But I just wanted to be with her, so I put with. And then also, if you go to my YouTube, Mila Johansson, you can hear her tell a couple of the stories and in her own voice. And then also I have a website where you can read and see lots of pictures. It's milajohansson.com.
0: Okay, well, we will have all of those links and things in the show notes because I'm sure there are going to be people who just want to dive right in and... Open up this world that you know really it's a hundred years ago, you know there's not a lot currently that is available for us to really go back in time and and learn about what it was really like. so thank you so much for coming on the show, Mila. This has been absolutely awesome, and i just I love that your mother or your grandmother was such a badass and that <laughs> you. <laughs>
2: I love hearing you call her that. Thank you so much for having me. And she was a badass.
0: She was indeed. Well, this has been the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass.
1: You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma, and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members, and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.